0: Welcome to Upstream in Perspective, an S&P Global Commodity Insights podcast. In each episode, we explore the complex environment that shapes the global energy markets, backed by our industry-leading energy information, analytics, and insights. Here's the host of today's show.
1: This is David Vosche coming to you from Paris today. It's uh, unseasonably beautiful, and uh, I don't want to derail this already by getting into what that might mean, but uh, for now, I'll just say that it's really nice having the windows open. Uh, Gosh, it's been a while since we have uh, done this, and there's been a lot of change. You know, from a a macro perspective, obviously things have just been uh, all over the place. I think that's the story for 2022. From a corporate perspective, uh, I was coming to you as an IHS market colleague before. I'm now coming to you as an S&P Global colleague. That's been our big news. And on an even smaller level, I think uh, one of the uh, other really nice changes that has happened is that I will be splitting some of these podcasting duties. So I'm just here giving a brief introduction to one of my colleagues, Prashant Pillai. He and I work very closely on the cost supply chain team and uh, he has very kindly agreed to to do some of these podcasts. So I'm really excited that you're gonna get to hear from him. He's a new voice on this podcast. And then we're joined by some uh, of our regular guests. They've been great in terms of contributing their time and content. And so we're really looking forward to uh, getting into what they're gonna be covering on this show. But without any further delay, I won't steal any more of uh, the thunder of the actual attendees on this podcast. So, Prash, I will turn it over to you.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much, David. Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. I am talking over here from London today. It's a beautiful day outside uh, compared to the griminess that we've had in the last couple of days. So that's a welcome relief. Today with me, I have Fernanda Machado and Isaac Nuti who have done some extensive work and research on the prolific Guyana Basin. It will center around a report that they recently released, uh, co-authored together. A basin that's predominantly an offshore basin, uh, stretching across the waters and Suriname. And uh, we deem it to be something of a you know, very sort of prolific nature moving across the next few years. And now turn to Fernanda, who is going to give us a little bit more insight into some of the basin discoveries that have happened over the last few years. So, good morning to you, Fernanda. Would you be able to sort of give us an insight into some of you know, the commercial exploration history and sort of the acceleration of the wild thing that's happened in the, the Guyana Basin over the last decade or so?
2: Hi everyone, and welcome, fresh to the podcast about Guiana Basing, It actually the exploration started in 1929, it was very sporadic and was mostly focused on the shelf and onshore regions. The deep water section ended until 2015 when Lisa was discovered by Exxon and partners in the Stabler block, and it's the most famous the discovery there. Not famous, but was also the first and largest discovery so far. It has 1.8 billion barrels of oil equivalent of recoverable resources. And this discovery actually changed in the Guyana basin. Uh, since LISA, more than 40 discoveries have been made and added to the basin more than 16 billion barrels of oil equivalent. It's only seven years, you know, and all of that from about 80 new field wild cats. It's an easy calculation. The technical success rate of about 50%. And that's because it includes sidetracks and junked wells. We did an estimate and considered only prospects properly tested. And then this success rate in the basin increased to 60-60%. Exxon is the company presenting the best performance in, in this basin. It is the most active operator. And for this company and partners, the prospect success, success rate is about 80%. It's like you need five wells, three. it's really impressive. It is, after all, Exxon is the operator of the Stabroek Block, home of Lisa, and home to the basin's 13 billion boe of recoverable resource. So total discover, about 16 some, 13 percent, 13 billion discovered, 80 percent of the basin's total. An example of the 26 discovers larger than 200 million boe. Until mid this year, only seven were outside this block. Five in block 58, one in block 52, the, I'm talking about commercial discoveries. This six in, the Surin- in Suriname and one in the quarantine block. This last one is Kawa, was discovered by CGX this year. Is the largest one in Guyana side of the basin that's outside the Stabrat block and helped prove the New Amsterdam play inboard extension. Talking about this play, the New Amsterdam Upper Potential Turbidite Clastic Play is the most important over the five plays established. It accounts for 87% of the total recoverable resources covered to date. It is proved from the northwest in the Stabrook block, crossing the border to the southeast into Suriname's block 58 and 52. We call this as the Golden Lane. And the challenge now in the Basin is about to define the limits of this Golden Lane.
0: Well, that's great, Fernanda. So, you know, it definitely sounds like these reserves are you know very much highly de-risked. Obviously, from the quantitative insight you know you've given on the proven discoveries and associated sort of reserves potential, you know there seems to be a lot of a lot of promising uh, activity coming out of these basins over the next decade or so. Um, could you also sort of briefly cover the sort of petroleum systems, you know, structures and the tectonics of the Guyana Basin? Maybe cover some of the the plays. Yeah, there
2: are there are five plays established in in the. In in the guiana basin the new amsterdam play is the largest one it's 14 probable resource that's covered there and the other three the other four plays on the in there is the pulmonary tour the jurassic new the quarantine and the saramacca Saramaca is basically or it was one of the first ones there contains about 200 million boe uh, it's onshore pseudonami. The other ones are offshore plays. The Jurassic-Newconium, they are testing now. There is already a discovery. It is also in the Stabrock block, but this one's proved this other play. And the Pumeron turbidites, the second large, but still much smaller than the Amsterdam play. And also the quality of the oil are a bit different. They are heavier oil than what they found in the New Amsterdam play, mostly.
0: Okay, that's that's brilliant. Thank you so much, insight. Um, Turning to you, Isaac, um, would you be able to kind of talk about you know the sort of time frame from first discovery to you know commercial production? You know, what what kind of supply outlooks are, are we looking for the for the laser field at the moment?
3: Yeah. Um. Thank Thank you all for having me and working together again on this pleasure to to team up. So the historic nature of the Lisa field is very well documented, you know, going from discovery to production in in less than five years is difficult even in established producing nations. But to do that in a country with no previous production is unprecedented, even in the United States, in the Gulf of Mexico, where there is ample existing infrastructure in place, major developments do not typically go from discovery to production in that short of a time frame. Of course, there are a few that have done it. There's there's always subsea tiebacks once infrastructure is, is already in place, where that happens very often in the Gulf yeah. of Mexico. And and maybe in, in the future in in Guyana and Suriname that will start to happen you'll have some smaller fields that get discovered and a year or two later they're already producing it could happen but the Liza fields itself is completely unprecedented now fernanda i know you have researched some of the atlantic margin basins how how would they compare with that kind of five-year time frame from discovery to First production.
2: Hi, Isaac. Yeah, you you mentioned the border Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, we see some of this Atlantic deepwater basins with smaller time than 4.6, less than five years or so in Lisa, But generally, it's easy to connect fields to be developed in basins well-structured, subsea type eggs. On average, this less than five years doesn't happen in the Atlantic margins. We have historical producing basins with 80 years from discovery to the first oil, even higher than that uh, on average. And so it's it's quite impressive, even more thinking what you said. There's no infrastructure, there wasn't the first project to be developed there in, in a such fast time. So yeah, it's pretty
3: impressive, this for Lisa. Right, right. So, yeah, Lisa, Lisa was discovered in 2015, began producing in late 2019. And, and while there were some issues initially with the gas handling, it, it does appear those have kind of been resolved. Production is back on track. The second phase of production has already begun. So, there's now two FPSOs on the field. That second phase of the development started earlier this year. The third Phase is expected to start next year, and that will incorporate the Payara and Pecora fields as well. And in, in total, those those three FPSOs that will be on this Liza area asset, they are projected to produce around five hundred and twenty five thousand barrels of oil per day in twenty twenty four. So it's going from you know zero in twenty nineteen to over half a million barrels per day in in less than five years.
0: So no, that that, that, uh, that is certainly impressive. Yeah. I mean, let me just ask you, I mean, this question is directed to the both of you. What would you attribute to sort of the accelerated, you know, timeline from discovery to first production? What, what are some of the factors do you think uh, contributed to that?
3: I would put it on, uh, of course, they made an, ex- an exceptional discovery. Mm-hmm. Right. So, that is a, a huge part of of all of this. But also, I would say the companies that discovered it were experts. So, Exxon, Hess, you know, CNUC to a certain extent as well. But, Exxon and, and Hess already have so much experience with deep water mm-hmm,
2: developments.
3: Mm-hmm. It was kind of, I would say, this is kind of a perfect fit for them. So, that has definitely helped what do you think fernanda um
2: i agree and i think maybe also the fact that guiana was a new country on the oil and gas there wasn't many um, i have to check it better but i would say that the the market was very incipient and there's not many bureaucracies to go through right to, to guarantee that you could uh, implement the development of this field and and actually develop together with the country. So,
0: Yeah, no, great points, guys. Um, so this is a perfect segue over to you, Fernandic. I wanted to get a bit more understanding of some of, you know, the major players that are sort of mm-hmm. involved in developing the reserves over in Guyana Basin. Could you sort of talk about, you know, who the major operators are, and some of the joint ventures, partnerships? I'm sure there's, you know, a lot of farm-ins, you know and so yeah over to you fernanda
2: yeah um well isaac has already said about Exxon and has you know they are the partners on the stable block and the most important one but the a basin is actually populated by a mix of global international oil companies independents, and foreign you know, since we see Total Energies, we see Apache, we see Kinook as partner there, but Chevron is also there. Petronas is there, CGX Energy, TULO. So there is this interesting mix mix of companies. Exxon has and Kinook are the natural basin leaders. Total Energies and APA Corporation, that was formerly Apache Corporation, come in second but with some distance. They own the Block 58 in Suriname. Block 58 is the largest one in the country and the second one in the basin. So the next developments outside the Starbuck block we'll probably see in Block 58. About entry opportunities in deep water acreage, it, it was limited with most of the, the acreage taken. And, for example, Shell entered the basin, again, reentered the basin in 2020, through the acquisition of the Cosmos energy portfolio of exploration in frontier and emerging basins. It was a worldwide uh, acquisition, but that allowed uh, Shell to reenter the basin in 2020. But what we've seen recently is some independents reducing their acreage position in a kind of portfolio optimization to guarantee that they can explore the where they are better positioned. And, and then we see that Suriname and Guiana have plans to re offer the, these areas in bid rounds, which creates a new opportunity for companies to enter in these basins and deep water acreage. So we see this in both sides of the, the basin, the Guiana and in the Suriname side. And about recent success in bid rounds in 2021, Suriname held, uh, held a shallow water bid round, and Chevron acquired two blocks, block five and block seven. And while Total Energy and Qatar Energy increased their positions to other two blocks, block six and block eight. So we, we see that the, the largest, the global oil seas, I would say (laughs) they are looking to strengthen their position in the basin and they are looking at it with optimism to the future. The matter is where the the place, what are the extensions of the place and what else the basin can deliver outside what they already know it has been delivering for the last seven years.
0: That's excellent. Thank you so much for that. So kind of... You know, I wanted to sort of move on to the the more commercial issues regarding, you know, the gas production and how that's been piped uh, from the field to the mainland. You know, obviously for both Guyana and Suriname, I suppose the cost of energy to their domestic market is a major sort of policy issue, you know, that will be creating incentives to accelerate and consolidate their economic growth. So I, I think I read recently, you know, Guyana Gas, uh, you know, has, you know, they've signed this huge deal, you know, for the first for power project uh, to generate sort of cheap and reliable power for those countries. So how do you see pipeline constructions and all of that sort of being Im- impacted? I can start off with you, Isaac.
3: Yeah, so for Exxon and partners, the gas really plays a vital role in their oil production for sustaining pressures and all those type of things and maintaining production rates. So this this gas to shore project that is expected to, to start in the coming years, it's not going to have a huge impact on the fields and the assets themselves, right? It's not really something that ExxonMobil is doing out of an economic strategy, it's more so to help the country, I think, of, of Guyana, because it's not going to be a lot of gas in comparison to what is being produced by all these fields. You know, there's and really across the basin, many of these fields have high gas content as well. So the amounts of gas being being produced and, and reinjected is significant and, and very helpful for the oil production. But I I don't necessarily going to have a huge impact on the assets themselves. But what, what do you think about that, Fernanda?
2: Adding a bit on that, and I think that's mostly a way to help the country or to guarantee the good relationship between the companies and, and what the country needs besides anything else. Like what Isaac was saying, the f- financials, economics of those assets are well-structured. Doesn't matter the gas sale or the investment they are doing in that. So the the asset would be developed without or with the gas sale. I think that's the the most important. I think Isaac can also explore a bit more on this asset economics views and how how they are well positioned to be developed in oil prices and but i i I agree with that a lot of have been said about the gas in the guiana side in the guiana basin pipeline construction connecting to trinidad Tobago, large dream in in the past ephalan jeans, and but anything stopped the companies to, to develop or to bring the the field on stream on that first time that we said we're talking before we have seen in other places other assets that were delayed because they didn't know what to do with the gas. That's different again. They they can use it's good to use as well to keep everything the printer pressures and everything working properly. But and the amount of gas produced is not it's very small compared with the potential of gas they can produce. I think it's mostly because of that the gas production. But the the acid is strength in economics, then Isaac can export it better than I. But they, they are well positioned to be developed in the future. Right, Isaac?
3: It's 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 true. I think at this point, while they are ramping up oil production so quickly, I think the the main uses for gas would be Injection, of course, is, is the primary, primary operation there. Then there's also gas lift, which they'll use in, in some of the wells. They can use it for fuel as well for different power generation out in the ocean. And I think actually exporting the gas is something that it's just not something that they are necessarily concerned about at this point. But yeah, maybe in the future, because there's such a large amount there, it will just depend on demand and i think demand is going to be the main player there if the demand is is there and the gas is there i think they'll figure out a way to uh, to monetize it for sure
0: yeah absolutely yeah that's great you know i i wanted to also sort of touch on sort of the the economic side of of you know the the, the basin's potential you know in terms of uh, what kind of cash flow generations can can these operators expect Isaac, you know I mean I'm, I'm sure it must be some uh, uh, mouth watering sums.
3: <laughs> yeah that, that's where the uh, that's where the operators and partners get very excited. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> once yeah. you start talking about cash flow, we estimate over 450 billion in free cash flow uh, after tax to be generated it- from the existing discoveries. Right. And as more discoveries are made, of course, that number just continues to grow. At the same time, Mm -hmm. that free cash flow creates over five hundred and seventy billion in government take. So revenue to the government. And this is Guyana and Suriname, approximately four hundred and sixty of that five hundred and seventy goes to Guyana the remaining 110 billion goes to Suriname. And, and before we dive too far into what that means for the partners, I think we should think about what it could mean to the, to the citizens of these two countries. Because Guyana only has a population of about 800,000 people, that's it. So this government take number equates to about $575,000 per citizen.
0: Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
3: So, and with Suriname, the population is approximately 600,000 people. So, it's not quite as drastic for them. They only get, you know, about $180,000 per citizen. <laughs> Which these are just huge numbers, right? Of course, you know, the the government take does not go directly to the citizens. There are sovereign wealth funds, there's infrastructure projects, etc. Mm-hmm. But imagine the quality of life uh, for the general population in, in Guyana and Suriname. Um, it definitely appears to be going in the right direction, you know, with hospitals being built, uh, a huge focus on education, because the, the jobs are going to be more and more important. Just Just really amazing turnaround for, you know, when you think about it, uh, before Lisa was discovered, Guyana was trading rice for oil with Venezuela, right? And now they basically, as soon as Guyana started producing, they're they're a net exporter of oil and gas, right? Because they don't use that much. So, just just amazing. <clears throat> but then, switching back to the companies involved in these assets. It's a complete game changer, especially for the maybe more mid-sized companies like Hess and Apache. Guyana alone accounts for about 60% of Hess after-tax cash flow going forward. Wow. So you want to talk about priority, (laughs) I think Guyana is probably where they are focused. And then for Apache, Suriname accounts for about 45% of their cash flow going forward and you know they're involved in several different countries but it's just the discoveries in this basin have been so powerful that they're instantly changing the the future for for these type of operators so and and to put all that in perspective while the discoveries are still significant to a company like Exxon Guyana only accounts for about 10% of Exxon's Cash flow going forward. It's about 170 billion in cash flow to Exxon out of a, a huge number. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So so huge huge numbers there. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's yeah. Well, that's very insightful indeed. I mean, you know, I'd really want to extend my thanks to both of you for for coming on and featuring in today's episode before we end, I just wanted to ask you guys some questions, just get to know you guys a bit more better. So Isaac, what are some of the essentials that you need in your life? You know, that you can't go without?
3: Oh man, that's a, (laughs) that's a, it's a, it's a good question and important to think about. For me, the first thing I think about is my family. I would say that's the most essential thing for me. My wife and I have two young boys ages three nice. and one and then we have uh, a third third baby uh, on the way.
0: Congratulations.
3: Thank you thank you and and they're they're my you know absolute pride and joy. soak up all the time I can with them and all those those little moments. So I would say that's what I care about most to be honest in my life. so yeah excellent Good question.
0: Um, turning to you, Fernanda. Uh, what it what are some essentials that you need that you need in your life?
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> family is definitely one of the most important things for me as well. Like a co-Isaac and Ed. My friends, my dog, I don't oh, have... what's yeah. your dog's name? <laughs> It's B.
0: <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> it's a
2: golden cool, retriever, giant golden retriever. I don't have kids, but I have this four-legged kid.
0: <laughs> Got a big baby, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a big
2: baby, and and uh, I need coffee every day. And I have read, said that about coffee. I don't live without coffee. That's the first thing in the morning for sure. But I will add another thing besides coffee. That's chocolate. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, that's, nice. it's not a daily thing like coffee but it's very essential to my life
0: <laughs> excellent excellent i could not could not disagree and then lastly to both of you is there any kind of piece of media content a book music that you would recommend to the audience start off with you fernanda
2: yeah i'm not sure if recommend but i'm currently Building my house here in in the countryside of Brazil, and everything that I watch is about is building programs, so constructions and selling properties. Those brothers, (laughs) something brothers. Yeah, that's everything that I watch nowadays. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, over here,
2: not exactly to suggest anyone to
0: watch it, but yeah. that's, that's my daily life now. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this program in the UK called Grand Designs.
2: No, not this
0: one. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's actually, it's quite inspirational because it basically the, the host he goes and basically he follows a family on their journey. You know, they're building their dream home. So yeah, it used to be, yeah, he's quite addictive viewing, but oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> with you on uh the new house and everything I hope that goes well and how about you isaac
3: it's it's interesting that fernanda mentioned the new house being built the one book that i would say completely changed my mindset when i read it about four years ago would be a book called rich dad poor dad
0: uh-huh um, quite familiar which being, so. you
3: know yeah. indirectly involves real estate as I, I, I suppose it kind of leads most people down that path. But, you know, it really got me thinking more about assets and, and liabilities and how we choose to invest our time and and money. But yeah, just a very powerful book, I felt, and, and something that definitely was impactful for my life and has definitely changed the way I think about things at this point in my life. So, yeah. I
0: think, yeah, one key takeaway from that book was uh, three streams of income earned portfolio passive i was like oh mind blown <laughs> <laughs> i think i need to work more on the portfolio and the, the passive income side <laughs> right. yep. yeah yep. Yep. But excellent well you know i just wanted to extend my gratitude to the both of you for coming on and featuring in today's episode you know uh i wish you both an excellent rest of the day and i just want to thank our, our audience for listening in today and we hope to catch you all again very soon Ciao, ciao.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you. This podcast contains insights and data copyrighted by S&P Global. To learn more about our solutions or read additional market research,
3: visit us at spglobal.com.